We are back in Matthew 24, <laughs> also this evening together after some good lunch and some good fellowship. And uh, this passage for uh, several months now and it's amazing how many things good things important things we can derive from it once we try to go deeper than, than the surface um, this morning we were considering things of great importance especially because as we noticed much of what the Lord says here concerning the very last days has to do with Christianity itself um, more with that than with the rest of the world the Lord here wants to transmit to us his concern which should be our concern for the condition of those who profess his name um, and as we are fewer this evening um, I thought um, it would be probably better for us to um, do somewhat of an excursus um, following up what we saw this morning and uh, reserve perhaps um, more intensive work on Matthew 24 uh, for, for, for the next time. Um, but following up on what we were say, saying this morning, um, and we talked of how Christianity uh, will degenerate as the time of the end draws near. Uh, but as the Lord speaks of this degeneration, He warns us, beginning with verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. Be careful that no one deceives you. He repeats that. Be careful. Uh, false Christ, false prophets, false miracles will abound everywhere. And when he says, take heed, lest no one deceives you, means to, means to say, obviously says that it will not be so very easy to discern. It will not be a simple thing to discern. Where is the truth? Who is true? Who is false? In fact, uh, he would emphasize this again um, when he says in verse 24, false Christ, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonder so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I mean, these are strong words. What they will say, what they will appear, what they will do will seem so genuine so true um, that it will be difficult to resist them. Uh, not be, will not be easy to discern. And yet he says, verse 25, I have told you beforehand. I have warned you beforehand. Be careful, take heed, watch out. It will not be easy 
to discern your way through these times. And um, as we saw this morning, uh, end time Christianity will be a kind of Christianity that will, at least we saw several things, but at least we saw this too, that will depart from Scripture. Um, and so I would like to emphasize this, uh, the relationship between Christianity and Scripture, also in the light of what the Lord says in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That is quite a statement. Because, again, let me go back just a moment. Verse 25, I've told you beforehand. That statement by itself implies that what he says here um, is binding for us, remains as a testimony. The Lord says, what I told you here is true. What I told you here will happen. It will be so. This is the truth. Hold on to it. I've told you before, these things would happen. So Christ's words is meant to last. Christ's words is not meant to pass away. Heaven and earth pass away, but not His word. So when we talk about God's word, Christ's word, we're talking about a truth that does not fade away, that's not to be discarded, it's not to be thrown away, it's not to be neglected. We cannot expect for something better to come up. We, we must hold on to it. Christ himself makes it vincolante, binding <laughs> to us when he says, I've told you beforehand. And in verse 14 when he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world till the end comes. <laughs> it means that, that that gospel is binding. That gospel stays the same. That gospel will traverse, go through the whole of history. It's not something to be discarded, it's not something to be messed with, it's not something to be changed, it's not something to be altered or modified or accommodated. The gospel is to remain the gospel as it is, as it was, as it is, as it will be until the end comes. Then the end will come when this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. And this, that we are saying, that the Lord is saying, is in sharp contrast with the lightness and superficiality with which end times Christianity regards the words of Christ. We saw that this morning, how lightly they are taken, how lightly, how easily they are neglected. And because they are neglected, then people will be deceived. So, on the one hand, you have a Christ that emphasizes the perpetuity, the continuation, the binding nature of the gospel and of his truth. And on the other hand, we have our professing followers of Christ who forget his word, neglect his word, and they are therefore deceived. So, I would like to take some time this evening to just fix our eyes on this theme, this subject. Uh, what must our relationship be 
with the gospel, with the truth of God as it is taught. We will also consider what must be the relationship between what the Bible teaches and our theologies. <laughs> what is the difference between the two? Well, the two are not the same. The two are not the same. One thing is what the Bible teaches per se. <laughs> And the other thing is what we believe the Bible teaches <laughs> and we frame it in our own thoughts and words and concepts. You're putting together all the great volume of truths that is presented in the Bible in our own terms, but also in our own times, in our own cultures, in our own societies, in our own times in history. God is infallible, we're not. God's word is absolute, we're relative. God is not influenced by circumstances, we most certainly are. And when you study theology through church history, you see continual changes. I'm not just talking about understanding God's truth in a deeper way, I'm talking about manipulating, altering, changing the meanings, the root meanings of God's truth. So, as we're, we were considering this morning, there, seem, there doesn't seem to even be a, a more um, uh, necessary, needed subject than this. What our relationship must be to the truth of God. The people of God towards the truth of God. In terms of God's truth, absolute, our own understanding of God's truth, um, what is it? What must be? Um, so, let us go back to Matthew chapter 4. Let us begin there, this excursus, um, this regression to take a broader picture of this subject here. So important, so important. Verse 18, Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's how the Lord began to gather those that one day He would make His apostles. Now they're simply disciples. Now, uh, the two words don't mean exactly the same. <laughs> Certainly, a uh, the term disciple is prior to the term apostle. A disciple is a learner. One who sits at the feet of somebody to learn, uh, acquire knowledge, truth. And that's their first stage, receiving, learning, for themselves, uh, taking in His truth, learning His truth. But there is a purpose, there is a goal. For right now, they're only fisher, fishers of fish. <laughs> One day they will be made fishers of men. And that's where the term apostle comes in, 
sent ones, apostles. Because they've been disciples, they can be also apostles. <laughs> because they have acquired, made their own, understood, received, believed, then at some point they will be also ready to teach, communicate, as they are sent as the representatives of Christ, as the spokesman of the Holy Spirit. So he begins with discipleship, then apostleship. Uh, in Matthew 11, through this process of learning, we come to a very important phase of the apostle's life. Um, How much these fishermen uh, know about the gospel? How much did they know? How much did they understood of the gospel, of God's truth? Well, we know from the gospels that they understood very little, very little. But they grew in knowledge. And uh, focusing now on the person of Christ especially, it is very apparent that the first thing that the Lord wanted them to understand was who he really was. Who, his, uh, his personal identity. Um, look at what the Lord does, Matthew 16, uh, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Why, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Consider Notice he's talking about his identity. Who am I? What do people say that I am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? What do you say that I am? Do you understand? Are you, are you as confused <laughs> as other peoples are? John the Baptist, Elijah reincarnated, or another one of the prophets? Is that what you think? Or, or have you come to understand something different? Simon Peter answered and said, No, no, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, As God worked in the hearts of His disciples, they've come to this firm belief that He's not just a mere man. He is God, uh, incarnated, true God and true man. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are deity. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you didn't just learn this you know, mechanically or humanly, uh, traditionally or didactically from somebody's lips. It is the Spirit of God who taught you this. That's the nature of true faith. It is a God-given gift. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades, uh, Hades shall not prevail against it. So we don't want to get into this now, but the rock was evidently not Peter himself, but was what Peter confessed. The rock was the truth of Christ, the person of Christ, the truth in relation to the identity and work of Christ. And on the basis of that rock, of that foundation, as Paul also clearly explains in Ephesians 2, then the church will be built. Uh, now this is very important because the Lord Jesus does relate, does relate the apostles to some founding role in relationship to the church itself. The apostles would have a founding role or function in relationship to the church. The truth the apostles would teach and confess would be the rock upon which the church was going to be built, which implies, means, that the apostolic truths, as they would then teach it, is binding to all those that will be part of this edifice, of this building. You cannot be part of Christ's church if you're not built on that rock that is made of, of the apostolic truth concerning Christ, His very person, His very gospel. Uh, so there's no question, and even here, uh, the Lord is speaking, even though in a future sense still, they're not ready yet to um, absolve that function. They still need to mature, they still need to understand, but it does speak that in the future it will be so. They will have this role, this foundational role, as uh, the official witnesses of Christ's truth. Now, look at what happens right after this. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. What is he doing there? Well, let us notice from this time, he began. He began. This is very, very important to notice. <laughs> this is not the first time that Matthew uses this expression. Already Matthew 13, from this time he began to speak in parables. So these are moments that are to be noted, underscored, because they are important. It was not a coincidence that the Lord began to speak of this at this point. <laughs> what does He speak about? He speaks about His work. He had his disciples to follow him, to be with him. First of all, to understand who he was, his own identity. As soon as they confessed his identity, he began to teach him more directly about his work. First his person, and then his work. Why is that? Well, notice that he, he speaks of his death and resurrection. <laughs> Verse 21. No? We're talking about the, this 
redemptive acts <laughs> of Christ, death and, re- and resurrection. Um, so he's talking about what the Son of God, the Messiah, will do to set us free. The question can be raised, why does his death have redeeming value? Why is Jesus' death so different from any anybody's death? My death couldn't liberate you, couldn't set you free. Nobody else's death can. Why is his death different? Because of who he is. If Jesus were a mere man, his death would just be like the death of anybody else. The difference is made by his identity. Because he is the Son of God, because he is the Messiah, because he didn't have to be incarnated, because he didn't have to live for us, because he didn't have to die for us, for our sins, then his death is the only death that can redeem. So you cannot separate Jesus' identity from Jesus' work. And it is quite vain to evangelize, speaking to people about how Jesus died for us, if we haven't first clarified who he is. (laughs) Who he is. Many people talk very sentimentally about the cross of Jesus, having no idea that there was God giving his life for us because he loved us. They gave himself for us. That's enough to make us tremble, isn't it? So this is this is how we see that the Lord is teaching these disciples. In fact, <laughs> there was a time, if we go back to Matthew 8, remember what happened on the boat when the Lord spoke peace to the tempest and everything stayed still. They said, who is this man? You remember that? They marveled and they said, who is this man? This man? <laughs> it was very clear in Matthew 8, they still don't have an idea a proper idea of his identity, but they do in Matthew 16. So they have learned. Now their 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 ideas are clear as to his identity, but do they understand his work? No, they don't. <laughs> See what happens. Jesus began to tell them that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus won't suffer. Jesus won't die. Jesus won't raise from the dead. Peter is denying the Gospel. Well, he does not understand the Gospel. He has a clear idea of Jesus' identity, but not of Jesus' work. That's exactly why the Lord began to teach them. Moving from one category to the next one. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Then listen, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Literally, you do not understand the things of God, but the things of man. You're not understanding. You're not understanding right. You have no idea of God's plan 
of God's work, you still need to understand. If we move to Matthew chapter 20, the Lord goes back to this very thing. Also because his death was drawing near. Then Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Well, they expected that Jesus would take over the kingdom. <laughs> but no, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third, third day he will rise again. Notice that as he speaks, with respect to the other time that we read in Matthew 16, he is giving more details. He's saying that he will be betrayed, he will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, speaking of Judas, and they, the chief priests and scribes, will condemn him to death and then hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, torture him, and crucify him. He had not said this before. He's increasing the amount of details, horrific details, because he, he knows how to teach. He knows how to teach, given a little at the time. Otherwise, people can be overflooded, <laughs> overcome uh, by the power or the horror of truth at, time, at times. Um, you know what happens later in verse 20? Um, Salome, the, the mother of Peter and James, um, asks for a favor. Verse 21, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one at your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, yes, we are able. They did not understand what they were talking about at all. What he was talking about and what they were talking about the Lord then addresses the question of pride because they have been talking about who was the greatest. So in verse 25, the Lord called them all to himself, all his disciples, 12 disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Let him be deacons. That's the word. <laughs> Servants. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Doulos. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, now that one last statement is of tremendous importance because this is actually the first time that the Lord directly 
and not just through symbolic language, explains the purpose of his death. He had talked about the, the fact of his death, the horror of his death. Now he explains in verse 28 the meaning of his death, the purpose. He's not come to be served. He didn't need that. He was God. He is God. But to serve because we needed his service and to give his life a ransom for many. So he gives his life. He is killed. Uh, but he gives his life to pay a price through which many can be ransomed. Many can be redeemed. Many can be saved. See how clear that is? It's very clear. And so this is the first time he tells him. And this statement here is most certainly connected to Isaiah chapter 53. <laughs> it's practically taken from chapter 53 of Isaiah. He will give his life as a ransom for many. The concepts are all there, even the language to, to such an extent. Um, now we focused on the identity and work of Christ for one reason, because and here we come to the first area of responsibility what is the first responsibility of the church or the people that claim to be Christians the first responsibility is to receive correctly receive the truth of the gospel our first responsibility is to clearly understand correctly understand the truth of the gospel. See how the Lord labored as a teacher? So that they may clearly understand, not wrongly understand, no false ideas. They had plenty of ideas. When Peter said, this will not happen to you, you will never suffer, you will never die, what was he talking about? That was the mindset of the Jewish culture. The Messiah was going to be a victorious hero was not going to be a suffering Messiah or dying Messiah. That was unthinkable. But uh, evangelical truth is, cannot be determined by culture, even religious culture. The Jews were wrong in the idea that they had of the Messiah. Christ has come as Messiah that we may really understand who the Messiah was to be. He determines it, not us. So they must change their minds. When the Lord said to Peter, you don't understand the things of God, but the things of man, he was telling you need to change your mind. You need to change your thinking. And here he's doing the same thing. When they were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they were having the same attitudes as the big rulers of this earth who want to lord it over the people. They say, you're thinking, you're taking, the, you're, you're following the wrong examples. <laughs> Follow my example. I have not come as a ruler to lord it over the people. I have not come to, to be served. As they, the politicians, want to be served. I have come to serve to the point of giving all of myself that you may be saved. What a difference. What a difference. What a change of mind that was to take place in them that they may correctly understand gospel truth why because 
as we read in Matthew 24, they were to preach it. And it was to be preached throughout history to the end of the world. Uh, if we go to Matthew 28, we certainly understand why. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore, this is spoken after his death and resurrection. So the Lord tells his disciples, anymore he tells his, apostle, his apostles, because in the moment he says, as you're going, he means like as apostles, as the sent ones, <laughs> as you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he commands his apostles now to teach all the things that he had taught them. That's going to be their primary role, their primary function as uh, apostles of Christ, sent by Christ. Why can they teach? Because they have learned. He could have said this in the beginning. No, because they did not have understanding. But after they went to school for three years <laughs> and, and understood the truth of Christ, then they were ready, in God's grace, by His Spirit, to teach. You first learn, then you teach. And you never stop learning, even as you teach. That is for certain. Um, in fact, in uh, John, you would remember John 16, the very night uh, he was then arrested, um, he told them this. He had taught him many things. He just saw it. <laughs> but he says, verse 12 of John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All the things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said, that He will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit will continue to teach you what He hears from me as I hear from the Father. The whole Trinity is involved in the communication of the truth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwelt in the apostles and inspired them to teach God's truth according to His Spirit. The Apostle Paul <laughs> uh, addresses this very issue in 1 Corinthians 2. You remember, he says in a wonderful passage, uh, verse 9, I has not seen or ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirits of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. He is the only source, the Spirit of God. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, notice, received. First you receive, isn't it? First you learn. First you apprehend. Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, these things that we have understood through the Spirit, we also speak. You first receive, and then what you do? You give. You receive and you give. You learn and you teach. Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual which is telling us here that the, the Spirit has His own language. <laughs> he chooses His own words to express the truth of the Gospel. Uh, we should never take the Spirit's words lightly <laughs> as they're being communicated. You know that in some Bibles they discard words such as you know, redemption or substitution or uh, other theological terms as if they are not important. Well, no, God's words are important. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. That's quite a statement of inspiration, apostolic inspiration. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. He lacks the Holy Spirit, so he cannot understand. He has no fellowship with God. So, I mean, this is a strong, wonderful commentary on John 16. The Spirit will come and teach you all you need to know, you apostles. Paul says, the Spirit has come and He's taught us, therefore we speak as apostles, as He inspires us to speak, even the very words that we use are the words of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm emphasizing this because we're actually going from one um, phase to another. We first saw that the first phase is to correctly understand the Gospel. The second phase is to correctly transmit the Gospel, communicate the Gospel. And that's what Paul is saying. We're received by the Holy Spirit and we transmit by the Holy Spirit. And so we go back to Acts 2 to see the point in which historically the apostles began the second phase of their uh, role. First as disciples and then as apostles. <laughs> as disciples they correctly apprehended from the lips of Jesus and the light of the Holy Spirit, the truth. Now, through the Holy Spirit, they are witnesses to teach it 
to communicate it. Uh, actually, in chapter 1, the Lord had already told them, uh, verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. See, you will speak of me. <laughs> you will testify of me. You will preach my gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See that? Always independence of the Holy Spirit. They will testify. They will speak. They will witness. They will teach. In fact, that is what happens in Acts chapter 2. <laughs> The first time the apostles, through the lips of Peter especially, preached the gospel. Uh, verse 14, Peter standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known unto you, and heed my words. So he begins to speak, and especially, verse 22, Men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so the subject of Peter is Jesus. The identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus. His incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, speaks of that. <laughs> and his return, even his return, look, <laughs> because at some point, uh, I'm speaking about um, especially verses 33 therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out he poured out this which you now see and hear God's Spirit Christ is the one who uh, baptized his people with his Spirit as he had promised. Uh, and then he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see that verse 34 and 35 the Lord said to my Lord sit until see that sit until <laughs> he will not always be sitting one day he shall be returning until I make your enemies your footstool so Peter the apostles preach Christ the person of Christ, the work of Christ, He is their message. And then, when there are believers, thousands believe are converted, look at what happens. Verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, 41, those who gladly received His word 
were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and prayers. You see that? Now the apostles who have first learned in the Gospels, <laughs> in the book of Acts, are apostles. In the Gospels, they're disciples. They apprehend, they learn, they receive, they correctly understand the Gospel, so that in the book of Acts, as apostles, they are then able to correctly teach the Gospel, and in all the truth that Christ has taught, this is called the Apostles' Doctrine. <laughs> this is called the Apostles' Doctrine. That is very strong, you see. Uh, verse 42, The believers continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. Why is it called that way? <laughs> because it was Jesus' Doctrine. It was Jesus' Doctrine that they were teaching. As you go, teach all the things that I've told you. <laughs> so it's the Apostles' Doctrine, but insofar as it is the uh, Doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ. And the two are the same because they are faithful to Him. They teach what He has taught them. So we see them come into this new phase. <laughs> uh, in truth, they remain disciples. We always remain disciples. But now they're also apostles. They have been sent with a specific purpose to correctly transmit, communicate, teach, pass on the truth they have received. And this they will do all their life long. But as we read in their letters, especially as years go by, we see them entering into another phase as well. Preserving, faithfully preserving the truth of God. Uh, correctly receiving, understanding, correctly teaching, faithfully preserving the truth of God. The three areas of responsibility that they have, that they had, and I would say we do also have. Um, look at first, uh, Second Peter chapter 2, if you would. Uh, Actually, would you go to the letter of James, practically the earliest letter of the New Testament? James chapter 2, let us begin with him. Chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works to back it up? Faith save him. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them 
the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith is dead. It's not alive. It's not real. It doesn't exist. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Why is Paul writing? Well, why is James writing this? Because he was concerned. <laughs> concerned that the doctrine of grace was being abused. And he was concerned enough to fight for the preservation of the truth by arguing in favor of the truth. What some people are saying that faith without works is enough to be saved is not true. Faith, if true, must be demonstrated by works. Otherwise, faith is not true and does not save because it is not real. We're saved by grace alone, <laughs> through faith alone, but grace and faith do not remain alone. They produce a change of life, a change of character, a change of behavior, a change of everything. Of course, there is a growth. We were first newborn babies in Christ, and then we go. There is progression, but there is also profound change if the gospel is the gospel, as the gospel is the gospel. So we see already here, uh, most would place this letter around 40 AD. This is the earliest letter that we have in the New Testament. And we already see that the apostles are concerned. Even the brother of the Lord is concerned because there is a manipulation and alteration of the faith and abuse of the doctrine of grace, of the message of grace. That somehow we can be saved through this empty faith even if our life remains unchanged. The struggle for the preservation of the truth in the letter of James. We could give more examples from James, but we pass on to Peter, second letter of Peter. Look at uh, chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even deny the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many... Hmm. We found this word before, didn't we? In Matthew 24, many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Again, Peter is concerned of false doctrines of Pharisees coming in the church, bringing division and causing destruction amongst the people of God. And so he struggles for the preservation of the truth. He argues for it. Other examples could be given. Chapter 3. <laughs> he argues there for the return of Christ who's being taken lightly. But let us go to First John, the letter of John. Uh, well, chapter 2. <laughs> uh, 
Verse 4, he who says, perhaps we should, could even translate, he who claims, <laughs> I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What is John arguing? For the preservation of the truth. <laughs> He's talking about the same thing that James was talking about. Claims, 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 words, 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 without facts to back them up. And John says, it's not enough to say, I know him, if you don't obey his commandments. <laughs> In fact, the same thing, uh, he had uh, you know, previously said, verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, but walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, it's concerned with these confessions, with these professions, with these claims. He's arguing for the preservation of the truth. There has to be a change in your life if you're truly converted. Otherwise, we lose the gospel, the power of the gospel. And then again in chapter 4, he will be very strong here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Be careful, watch out. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which, as you have heard, was coming and is now already in the world. Notice that practically what John is, is making here, the test of faith, the confession of the incarnation of Christ, is the very point that Jesus made with his apostles, when they were receiving these truths, who do you say that I am? <laughs> you are the Christ, the Messiah, you've come, you're a man, but you are also the Son of the living God. <laughs> true God and true man. This is the same test now that uh, John here gives uh, that can uh, be used to identify the, the false spirits from the true spirits. Discernment discernment. All through this letter, uh, John speaks alarmingly about the degeneration of Christian truth. He tackles a number of truths that are being perverted, and he struggles, he fights uh, to preserve them. He teaches to preserve them, discerning the truth from error. And if we go to the letter of Jude, <laughs> What do we read there? Well, you, you know it already. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. This is a, a passage of tremendous importance. Uh, it, it seems to bring together all the major elements that we need to see even this evening. There is a faith that was once given to the people of God. The faith has the article before it, so it's not talking about the subjective faith of everyone, but the objective faith of, of God's Word. 
the faith, the truths of our faith, uh, was once for all delivered to the saints. So this faith is a body of truth, is a deposit of truth that has been given once for all and must not be altered. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. God's truth is not to be handled uh, in a way that is manipulated or accommodated, altered in any way. It must be preserved. And notice that he says, uh, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend. Contend. That's a strong verb. <laughs> to struggle. To contend. Uh, earnestly earnestly for the preservation of the faith there is a battle there is a battle why is this necessary evidently because this faith uh, is subject to the attack of many who want to alter it verse 4 for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into freedom to sin li 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 licentiousness <laughs> and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ because there are men who are actively trying to pervert the faith to distort and abuse the doctrines of grace, to make them an excuse for sin, we need to fight. We need to battle. We need to contend earnestly to preserve the truth as it is. It is really amazing, as we read these letters, to find so much that's being said concerning the preservation of the faith. The apostles are alarmed. The faith that has been transmitted is now subject to attacks from outside and from inside. Uh, from outside, unbelievers that attack the faith, from the inside, professing believers who alter the faith. And we must do all that we can using spiritual weapons to preserve the truth. Does Paul speak differently? Let us go to his earliest letter, uh, Galatians. Uh, probably written around some say 49, 50 AD but there's some uh, you know, differences of opinion as to when this letter was written but one thing is for sure what he writes now look at uh, Verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some. Peter points them out. Judas points them out. Uh, John points them out. There are some among Christians. Uh, who trouble you and want you to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we 
paradoxically, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Important words are used here. Received. You have received the gospel. Remember the correct reception of the gospel. The correct understanding of the gospel. You must first understand it. Paul said you received it. You believed it. Now hold on to it. <laughs> Don't let it be uh, perverted. And Paul is marveling that they are allowing that to happen. Um, verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul says, I received it from the Lord, I pass it on to you, <laughs> Now hold on to it. Preserve it as it is. Don't let it be corrupted. Uh, contend for it. Uh, if we turn just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we come to another major uh, statement here concerning this very problem. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, I passed on to you, first of all, that which I also received. Notice the words. <laughs> received and delivered. Received and passed on. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas. Then by the twelve. And so forth. He begins to talk about all the ways in which Christ demonstrated the reality of his resurrection. Verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? You see? This is the gospel that I received. <laughs> this is the gospel that I believed. And this is the gospel that I passed on. And this is the gospel that is preached by the apostles that Christ died and rose from the dead. If this is so, as it is so, why is it that some among you say there is no resurrection? They're departing from the gospel. So what does Paul do? Is he silent? Does he say that the reality of the resurrection doesn't matter? No. If there is no resurrection, verse 13, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. 
For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, he repeats his arguments. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished because they supposedly believed the lie. <laughs> because Christ supposedly was never risen. Paul is saying, do you understand the consequences <laughs> if you give up the doctrine of the resurrection? That has direct implication on his death because if Christ is not risen, then his death is not redemptive. And if not redemptive, there is no gospel. We're still lost. And those who have believed the gospel have perished because they have supposedly believed the lie. So if you take away the resurrection, everything comes down. So we see here as James, as Peter, as John, as Jude, Paul strongly contending for the faith. This is a body of truth that must be preserved. This is a deposit of truth that must be preserved at all costs. And the last verse I would point out for this evening is in 2 Timothy. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13. Timothy. Now, mind you, this is the last letter that Paul writes. <laughs> Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice, <laughs> Paul is not, doesn't just speak generally of doctrine, but of words. He believes the words are important. <laughs> as we have already read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That good thing which was, was committed to you, keep by the Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul it tells him to hold on to that deposit of faith that was given to him and trusted to him. You must contend for it, you must preserve it, you must keep it. These are the words that he uses. And then notice... <laughs> What he says in chapter 2, You therefore, my sons, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now that's what a statement. The things I have taught you, do not entrust them to anybody. Their character must be proven. They must be faithful men. Why? Because they must be able in the grace of God to um, faithfully maintain the truth. <laughs> I passed on the gospel to you faithfully. You faithfully preserve it. Pass it on to other men who prove themselves to be faithful that they may too pass it on faithfully. Four generations are found in, this, in these two verses which do nothing but echo what we've been seeing all the whole time. The whole time. These three phases in the life of the apostles, we may say three responsibility. First, as disciples, they correctly understood the gospel. 
then as apostles they taught it correctly, truthfully, faithfully, and then they uh, <laughs> contended to preserve the gospel. They battled, they fought, they argued, not using spirit, um, carnal weapons, not through guns and missiles, <laughs> but through the truth of God and the Spirit of God, keeping themselves uh, committed. Uh, rightly receiving, correctly transmitting, faithfully keeping. These are the three areas of responsibility that the church has towards the truth that God has entrusted to us, for which we are all responsible. <coughs> uh, these are clear principles, clear principles from the scripture, and out of these principles there are a lot of implications that we can see. Uh, well, first of all, our attitude towards this deposit of faith. <laughs> uh, a distinction must be made between the deposit of faith as it was given to us through the Word of God and our understanding, our theology, the way we understand it, how we explain it, even the words we employ, with what care, with what seriousness, we must do this, being attentive that we never, never, never alter, contradict the truth of God in any way, in any way. Uh, remember what Peter said, uh, 1520, it uh, warms when he said, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. I cannot do otherwise. So he felt bound to the Word of God, committed to the Word of God, uh, and bound to the Word of God. Vincolato, that's how we say it. I like that word. Vincolato. Uh, which is an attitude completely different from the attitude we noticed this morning of this prophets that will appear, rise up in the church, and will have a flippant attitude towards the Word of God. Even the Christians themselves, professing Christians, you know, treating lightly the words of admonition, of alarm that Christ has communicated to us, saying, be careful, watch out. If they do this, they prove themselves to be false. Avoid them, stay away from them, hold on to the truth. This is how we return. It will not be this way. It will be this way. But His truth will be taken lightly because men will turn from the Word of God to the words of men. From the written Word of God to the dreams of men. To the revelations of men. To the prophecies of men. And nowadays this is going on everywhere. Everywhere. One thing that made the Reformation special was exactly what we are talking about this evening. There was such an attachment to the truth of God, a return to the truth of God, a love for the truth of God, a study of the truth of God, 
They, they wrote this massive volumes. They preached for years through a book of the Bible. For them it was as more precious than gold. They spent their life studying, loving, believing, living the Word of God as never before in history after the Apostles. That's what made the Reformation special. It would not have been the Reformation had it not been for this love and this commitment to the truth of God. That commitment in the history of, of the church as a whole has been severely lacking. Um, study the history of the Church of Rome. How soon it departed from the Gospel and messed it all up, corrupted the whole thing. Uh, but even in Protestantism, in time, especially the 18th century, the 19th century, the Protestants began to really abandon this deposit of faith that was once given to us. Uh, that's when you have deism, that's when you have liberalism. Uh, and all the different occurrence that have come in the church and uh, brought destruction. Throughout history, this has been the greatest challenge of all to preserve the truth of the gospel. It is so, it is true. It has been the greatest challenge of all maintain the truth of the gospel. What a struggle. How many attempts have been made to pervert it, alter it in every way possible? Um, there are a lot of things that can influence us by which we may misunderstand the gospel, misinterpret the gospel. We're finite, we're relative, we're not absolute. We don't understand everything. The time in which we live, the culture in which we live, influences us. And we must be mindful of all this. And none of us, no one among us, has a perfect understanding of what this book contains. We are all at fault at some point, so we must remain humble. But at the same time, this is the battle that's always been raging. Shall we be true? to the gospel? Shall we remain true to the gospel? This is like a witness that's passed on from runner to runner. <laughs> I think you call it witness, don't you? Testimone, you know, the running race, you kind of pass it on to, to the next. Uh, this will be the issue in the end of times, as we saw this morning. Again, I say, may the Lord keep us faithful good theologians of his word, attentive theologians, speaking carefully, never contradicting, always striving to be faithful, never thinking that we can alter the truth of God in any shape or form. This is his gospel. This is his truth. Amen.